This week on Geek Explained, for the finale of X-May 2022, we're taking a detour into a dystopian world, ruled with an iron fist by N. Sabanur. Comic Book Herald in My Marvelous Year's own Dave Busing joins me as we put the Geek Explained spotlight on the Age of Apocalypse. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the grand finale of X-May 2022, our second annual month-long series dedicated to Marvel's Merry Mutants. This entire month, I've had some wonderful conversations with some excellent guests, and this week, we are putting the Geek Explained spotlight on one of my favorite X-Men events of all time, the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm going to be joined by Dave Busing of the Comic Book Herald and also My Marvelous Year podcast. Uh, This was a wonderful conversation that we had. Dave is just an absolute wealth of knowledge. If you are a fan of Marvel Comics, if you are a fan of just comic books in general, his website, the Comic Book Herald, is just the most wonderful database when it comes to reading orders, when it comes to collections, where to start reading comics. That is a great, great website to check out. And his podcast, My Marvelous Year, is where they are going through every single year in the history of Marvel Comics, spotlighting different Marvel Comics that more or less represent what that year was in comics. It's a wonderful podcast. If you like what I do, you should definitely check out what they do. But here in this episode, we are putting the Geek Explained spotlight on the Age of Apocalypse, one of my favorite X-Men events of all time. It is very near and dear to my heart. And if you're not in the know, the Geek Explained spotlight is a segment every single month where I, sometimes solo, sometimes with an amazing guest, go through a graphic novel a comic book series, or sometimes even a one-shot, and just talk about why we love it so much. So, that is our main segment for this week. Of course, we also have this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be checking out this week, so stay tuned after the jump for that. But for now, let's roll on right into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, where I, alongside Dave Busing, will be diving in and putting the Geek Explained spotlight on the Age of Apocalypse. The year is 1995. I'm Eric. And I'm Dave. And this is My Marvelous Age, 
of Apocalypse. Excellent, excellent. We are here in the finale of X-May. We have gone through three weeks all talking about the X-Men, and now in week four, this is our finale. And for our finale, we're going a little off the beaten path, off of the 616 into the world of Earth-295, that being the Age of Apocalypse. And I am joined by a wonderful podcaster, one of the... I think most prestigious in all of comic book Twitter dumb, as well as just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the Comic Book Herald. From the My Marvelous Year podcast, from the Comic Book Herald website, from your favorite podcast, favorite comic book resource, Dave. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, and thank you for the nice introduction. That was great to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm Dave. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Comic Book Herald. And uh, run the podcast My Marvelous Year, where we go through the history of Marvel Comics from its origins to today, through the curated selections of of the best and most essential in the universe. And we just covered Age of Apocalypse over there, so I'm I'm excited to get to talk about it with you on this really cool X Month thing you're doing. Obviously, I am a big X Men fan, uh, and Age of Apocalypse is near and dear to my heart. I would say it is the it, alongside. The classic Claremont Cockrum into Claremont Burn Run. This is the event that got me not just into X Men, but into like reading comics with any consistency. So that it, it's it's it holds a special place, and I'm excited to talk about it here with you. Absolutely, and to that point, I wanted to ask. I've been asking everybody so far this month. How were you introduced to the X-Men? I know a lot of people, like, like myself, I was introduced to the X-Men through the animated series, and then mm-hmm. uh, The Age of Apocalypse is actually a very near and dear to my heart. It was the first X-Men comic I ever read. My dad yeah. collected them. He still has them. He gave them to me, and I was able to dust them off those original uh, oh, that's Age of Apocalypse amazing. issues. Yeah, you had, a, you had a print run. That's cool. Yeah, it's it. He kept them pristine. He was like, at some point, my son is going to make a podcast twenty years, twenty thirty years from now, and he's going to talk about this. That's so, how were you introduced to the X Men? Yeah, probably the animated series. I think as well. Uh, that would have been hitting, you know, right when I was I was young, and my dad was a comics fan, but he didn't have necessarily the print runs like that for me to dig up. So, definitely for me, it was. You know, the animated X-Men were were the X-Men that I knew. Um, And then it was much... So I think anyone with an animated fandom, like if you grew up on that or just enjoyed that series as a kid, probably has like a particular affinity for Apocalypse and and maybe to a lesser degree Mr. Sinister. Um, Those characters are so prominent in the animated series in a way that when you go back and actually read the X-Men comics, as I've, you know, since done... Um, those characters don't have that prominent a role, right? Like, if you're looking for good Apocalypse stuff prior to the animated series, he's a he's a pretty new character right. in the X-Men universe, right? Like, the Simonsons create him in X-Factor, um, and there's some interesting stuff in Fall of the Mutants, of course, and, and, and you know, turning Archangel, or turning Angel into Archangel, right? That's probably the most memorable moment of Fall of the Mutants for Apocalypse. But otherwise, like... He comes in, and he comes in hot, and he's interesting, but he's not the guy, necessarily. (laughs) Um, But if you watch the animated series, you might think, like, yeah, Apocalypse is, like, 1B to Magneto's 1A, right? And and that always definitely stuck with me, I think, in terms of thinking that those characters are so cool. Uh, And obviously, Age of Apocalypse, then, is, is the 
the apocalypse event, which cements it. But yeah, for me it was, it, so that was kind of the, the childhood fandom. And then really I didn't read comics until like midway through college. I started to find some of those black and white essential reprints oh, that Marvel yeah, was putting yeah. out. Um, and, you know, so I, I basically, I would have a blend. I'm an English major. So I would have a blend of reading like James Joyce and then chasing that with like Claremont and Cockrum, right? Mm. <laughs> and and then chasing that eventually too with like the Age of Apocalypse traits, like the first, you know, the first colored, you know, reprints before they, they put it together in Omnibus and all that stuff. So yeah, so that's that's kind of been my fandom. And then obviously Comic Herald I've been running since 2011, where I'm just obsessed with with all these characters and their continuity and putting together reading orders and best of lists and all that fun stuff. Um, and I, I've done many a deep dive since then. <laughs> but yeah. that was that was my road. And you know what? When it comes to that that animated series, I mean, Apocalypse's portrayal in that he he feels like a big deal, and yeah. that's not always how he's treated in the comics. I mean, that voice is always the voice that I hear when Apocalypse pops up in a comic. It's iconic for me. Yeah. And the when it comes to your uh, your website, all of your reading orders, a lot of the research that I have done on this podcast over the time that I've been doing it has been thanks to those reading orders. So thank you personally for helping to to facilitate that. Yeah. And when it comes to Age of Apocalypse itself, Obviously, it was the crossover event of the year. 1995 was so it was wedged in a weird time for mm -hmm. Marvel, right? We had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, they were reacting to the kind of the boom of DC's big old 90s events, Death of Superman, Nightfall, all that stuff. And they right. were like, let's do something bombastic. Let's do something huge. Uh, I believe this is before Heroes Were Born. Yep, or, it's just before. Yeah. So, so Heroes Were Born follows in the wake of Onslaught. Right, and Onslaught is the 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 exhaustive takeover that comes after <laughs> Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, all hot on each other's heels. And from what I understand, the the event itself was kind of helmed by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza, mm -hmm. and they came up with this pitch and. It was something that I don't think had been done in quite a concise way before. Up to this point, we'd had big events, Infinity Gauntlet. We've had stuff that kind of shook the Marvel Universe, but nothing this... I want I guess focused isn't the right word, but it kind of is, right? It it didn't take like the Clone Saga, where it was like multiple years of time that it twisted and changed and you know started out as one thing became something wildly different this was something that from the beginning had a direction and had a stopping point as well do you think that's kind of a reason that people look on it so fondly yeah absolutely i mean i think there's there's a lot you touched on there that is interesting about it but it's age of apocalypse kicks off basically 1995 for for marvel comics at a time when marvel comics was like it's like right before the fall you know, in a lot of ways, like bad things are already happening <laughs> in terms of like <laughs> editorial strife and layoffs and upper management struggles. And they're heading towards, you know, one of the most notorious times in the publisher's history, which is the bankruptcy of 1996. Right. right. Um, and and some of that does start to get felt in the comics output around this time. You know, you mentioned the Clone Saga and certain things just dragging longer than they have any right to. And I think Age of Apocalypse, by contrast, is and, and Onslaught does the same thing. Is it just, it becomes exhaustive. It just becomes this thing that feels like it never ends. Age of Apocalypse is incredibly efficient. I mean, I, th I think when you're, when you say it's focused, you're right in that it has a beginning, 
a, a muddle, <laughs> but an efficient <laughs> one and an end. And it's four months, you know, all of these series. So like all the X-Men comics are canceled, which is obviously like Oof. a big thing then. And it's a big thing now, like yeah. fans react strongly to that. And we could talk about that. Um, but they get rebooted as these new series inside the alternate reality, the age of apocalypse. And they all only go for four issues. So as, as alternate realities go, as events go, I think it's tremendously appealing to a lot of comics fans and myself included among this when you know you can actually consume the whole thing and not lose your mind you can yeah. actually consume the whole thing and have a fun time and have it not take a year of your life um and age of apocalypse does that because it's like you know 35 to 40 issues um you know you throw in legion quest as the five issue really four issue preamble and yeah it's an efficient it's an efficient, like totally new yet familiar world, and that is, it's appealing then, it's appealing now, and it's very much working against the grain of what was happening elsewhere in Marvel at the time. So I think it really stands out compared to, again, Clone Saga, Clone Saga and Onslaught. And I think it also kind of stands to a lot of modern events as well. I mean, taking a, uh, a recent event, Ten of Swords was 22 or 24 parts or something and even though that was each in its own uh each in its own books you know had its own big thing going on alongside every single other x-book that was going on very similarly in that all of it was interconnected but unlike i think ten of swords you don't have to read all of it which is great uh when it comes to age of apocalypse there are definitely books that i guess for story purposes take precedent but if you want to get kind of a full picture of what the world is, you should read all of them because all of them have their merit. All of them have their different casts, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. A lot of, I think, the problem with modern tie-ins is that they'll have, like, you know, they'll have Superior Spider-Man who is, you know, off putzing around in San Francisco. And, oh, whoa, there's the War of the Realms. And now he's got to fight Frost Giants. And it's like, mm -hmm. ah, he's, he's not really included in this. I don't know what he's doing. Right. But with this, you know, having a having a cast for each book and each story and each being kind of a puzzle piece leading from the Alpha to the Omega is really cool. And even as a kid, when I was reading it for the first time. It made sequential sense, even though I didn't understand half of the characters. I didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, yeah. But it feels like it has the same DNA as that animated series. And we have a lot of the... I think there's a uh, there's a two-parter in the animated series. It's I think it's called One Man's Worth, yeah. where it's basically Legion Quest, just without Legion. Yeah. And... Let's let's chat about Legion Quest for a second because you did mention it and I definitely want to talk about it. Uh, Legion Quest kind of revolves around uh, David Holler, the son of Charles Xavier, who more or less you know goes crazy because of all the power he's amassing and decides, oh, like I can go back in time and I can kill Magneto and solve all of our problems, and I can't see any downsides to this. <laughs> so he goes back to when uh, Magneto and Xavier are young men and this ragtag group of X-Men goes after him. Storm, Iceman, Psylocke, and Bishop. Bishop, I can understand. There's always the, you know, the time-traveling shenanigans that he's involved with. But the other three, it's kind of wild to think about, like, obviously Psylocke was one of those, you know, mainstay X-Men 90s characters. But 
she once she it you know has her little you know day in the sun when it comes to uh when it comes to legion quest she doesn't pop up at all in the original age of apocalypse like she's just gone Mm -hmm. and it was interesting going back into reading legion quest and seeing these characters pop up how did you feel about like how do you feel about legion quest as a whole and as it is used into the age of apocalypse event yeah, I think it's I think Legion Quest is a fairly effective mechanism to get us to Age of Apocalypse. I don't I, I think it's okay. I don't think it holds up as like a fantastic X-Men story yeah. in and of itself. Um the stuff that I like is I actually really like we get these flashbacks because of Legion's plan to go back in time and kill Magneto as a as a younger individual. Um we get a lot of nice flashbacks to Professor X and Magneto as friends. You know, before they've had their falling out, sort of in that early nascent stage of them both discovering that they're mutants but not talking about it together, kind of having (laughs) suspicions but not openly having conversations. That's actually a really fun and, and worthwhile period to explore in the relationship between these two dynamic figures in mutant history. Um, I think as Legion stories go, you know, you get the debut of Legion in, in Claremont and Sienkiewicz, New Mutants, and you get the the power set and these cool visuals and the ties to Professor X and Gabriel Haller. And then it creators kind of don't know what to do with him from there. You know, it's kind of a tricky thing where he's just always sort of under surveillance at, like, the Muir Island Institute, and he gets taken over by Shadow King at one point, and yada yada. And here it's it's actually, like the most thoroughly powerful Legion's ever been. Like, he really comes into his own in terms of, like, he can do anything. He can take on the entire X-Men. There are entire nations that (laughs) that are, like, trying to stop him and can't. Um, So on a power level sense, this is the most powerful Legion's ever been. But character-wise, emotionally, there's not the depth that there's going to be in later years, you know? And even the relationship between himself and Charles Xavier is way less nuanced and interesting than like a creator like Cy Spurrier will make it in X-Men Legacy, yeah. you know, 20 years down the line. Here, Legion just like, he just wants his dad's approval, right? Um, he doesn't, he's not really reconciling with any of the aspects of like, oh wait, my dad abandoned me <laughs> for decades. Um, <laughs> that's a problem. Here he's just like, oh, my dad's approval, the way to get that and to make him happy is to get rid of Magneto because Magneto ruins everything. And um, and he goes and he tries to kill him. And Professor X, being Magneto's friend, jumps in front of the Psy Blast or whatever the heck you want to call it. And uh, <laughs> and he kills Professor X instead and sets up the Age of Apocalypse reality. So, yeah, like, I don't know. I'm kind of of mind that it's not – I don't feel like you have to have read Legion Quest to jump into the mm-hmm. Age of Apocalypse. Um, but if you're a fan of 90s X-Men comics and are interested in this history, it's it, there's some worthwhile stuff there. For sure. And I think as a building block, like, it's never going to be a story that you would tell people, oh, it's just a good standalone story. But as kind of a chapter zero mm-hmm. for Age of Apocalypse, I know at some point Age, Age of Apocalypse did like those flashback stories where it's like, oh, there's, you know, the formation of the X-Men or when Sabretooth met Wildchild and stuff like that. Yeah. But as kind of a a primer in a way to say, okay, so this is this is your doorway into this this your gateway into this world. I think right. it works, and to set up, you know, that this is something that is, I mean, more or less temporary. Because anytime they do any kind of reality shifting when it comes to the 
uh, mainline big two books, it's always kind of with a caveat. It's always with an asterisk. Like, hey, this is really cool, but it's only going to be for a little while. Just don't worry about it. Just enjoy the ride while it's here. And I think that's something that plays into the, the Age of Apocalypse's favor with it being like, I think everybody, I mean, I was a kid at the time, so I have no idea and no point of reference for it, but everyone at the time was probably most like, okay, th- this is going to be a fun ride, but by the end of the year, we're going to be back to square one. We're going to be back to the world that we know. And I think that allows a lot of people to not not disassociate, but like to kind of disconnect from the outrage that we get a lot of times when something happens or like you said, oh, we're canceling all of the X-Men books. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure leading up to it, it was like, whoa, what the hell is this? But in the same way that it's like, oh, we're canceling all the X-Men books before Hoxpox, there's this, okay, but what's going on here? What's the story? What's, you know, how are we going to get back to the world that we know? Yeah. And going into this world, going into the Age of Apocalypse, it's one of the most fascinating comic book dystopias I've ever read, right? Mm-hmm. It's this this world where without the X-Men apocalypse rose to power he has conquered all of north america like that is his domain and the rest of the world is kind of reacting to him europe is this safe haven for refugees for humans who were trying to escape the tyranny of apocalypse and having apocalypse kind of rule over this maybe not a sovereign nation but this dictatorship this almost uh latveria without the kindness that doom has for his people uh it's this it's this fascinating world where you see the the u.s is broken up into these different territories apocalypse has his horsemen which this is one of i think the most interesting group of four horsemen that apocalypse has um it's it's really cool getting into kind of the nitty-gritty of the world and how it's set up. And there's no um there's no like big info dump graphic where it's like, and this is how the world works. Mm-hmm. Or and this is the step-by-step process of how Apocalypse rose to power. You are kind of dropped in with X-Men Alpha into this world in media res, like, this is just what it is now, and you're going to have to catch up quick, and yeah. you're going to have to take a lot of context clues to find out more about this world. And in that way, it kind of feels like a really good open-world game where you're just kind of picking up clues from your interactions with different characters. I I love this world. It's It's something that I always come back to when I think about some of the best alternate Marvel universes. I, I completely agree. I think one of the smartest things that the creators involved here do, and I know it's like Fabian Nicieza, Scott Lobdell, I think the editor Bob Harris is is involved mm-hmm. in the conception initially, right? And then you get a lot of interesting creators who we can talk about actually putting together these these miniseries. Um, but yeah, they don't they treat the readership with some uh, respect and and some level of assumed intelligence, <laughs> yeah. and it's not too much hand holding, right? In terms of like, hey, we better explain everything that's going on because this is going to be a little weird they just throw you in they just throw you into the world and they assume that because there's a level of familiarity with so many of these characters right like the concept of magneto leading the x-men should not be 
like totally mind blowing, right? Like it is an right. alteration of characters that we know and relationships that we have seen before, but never cemented or taken this far, right? We have seen Magneto with the X Men leading the New Mutants in the eighties. We have seen Magneto with a romance with Ro- with Rogue in that famous Jim Lee and the Savage Land issue, right? In the early nineties. Yep. If you've read other X Men comics, all of these things are like there are hints of familiarity, but then it's taken to new degrees and it's taken the new steps and then every one of these issues you know you have the alpha and omega bookends which are really like incredible like going back to these i'm really really amazed at how effective and efficient x-men alpha is you know i assumed so like i just reread these this year um for the first time in probably a decade and i have such nostalgia and affinity for these comics as as these books that got me into x-men and into this world that i love uh but i definitely had a fear that going back, I was going to not enjoy it as much. I had a fear that I was going to be mm-hmm. like, "Oh, this is this is not as good as I remember," um, or which is often the case and is a very natural reaction right. to revisiting something. Right? You can't you can't go home again. Right? You you can't have that first experience <laughs> twice. That said, I had none of that with X Men Alpha. I was like, "Holy yeah. cow! This is a blast! It is so effective at building this world. It it just tells you everything you need to know. It's really an astonishing." event opener i would argue i mean for my money it it may well be the best first like kickoff to an event in in the history of marvel comics when i think about marvel events that i love i don't know that there are any better opening issues than this one frankly uh and i just before we before we dive deeper into the world i do want to say you know you referenced if you're a reader now who has some familiarity with kind of how comics function there is an awareness that when Marvel announces, you know, like in 2015, they're like, we're canceling everything and it's Secret Wars. Yeah. There's Secret an awareness Wars. that it's coming yeah. back, right? There's a, like, there should be that awareness. <laughs> in 1995, I'm sure some fans knew that, right? I'm sure there was some level of awareness for a lot of fans. But there was also, if you read interviews with the editors, uh, Bob Harris and like Ben Rabb, who are on, on these X-Men titles, there were a lot of fans who did not understand this, for sure. And there's a wow. slow build of them sort of announcing this and teasing it like they'd be teasing it out in Wizard Magazine initially, right? Which is which is oh, the big press cool. outlet for for Marvel in the 90s. Yeah. Fans were outraged. Fans fans were really bad cuz the X-Men are still the biggest thing in comics, right? At this of time, course. right? They're they're since, you know, X-Men number 1 in 91 with Jim Lee and the boom, right? They they're still the biggest thing in comics. Um even with the Marvel having its struggles and you have these stories of fans apparently you could literally telephone Marvel editorial in the 90s. I apparently wow. this was like not a an insane thing, which now it sounds totally absurd. Um oh, absolutely. But, yeah, but Ben Rabbit said in interviews that he had fans like calling him outraged that they were canceling all the X-Men books. And then there's some of these stories of people four months later being like, okay, you were right. That was pretty cool. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but it, anyway, I don't wanna I don't think we should overstate how cool fans were about this, because there was probably tremendous outrage built in and i think that was that was calculated i think that was intentional um in terms of like we're going to get a ton of hype and we're going to get a ton of attention because canceling x-men is in 1995 like basically the the wildest thing marvel could do you know yeah it, it, it was basically akin to like hey here's my prized possession my star player and my lineup all right we're trading him he's done yeah and yeah. it's yeah it, it's kind of crazy to think about how badly this could have gone like <laughs> yeah, in, right. in in some other world, like, oh, we're canceling all of our books. We're then going to bring them back under this new imprint for four months. Mm-hmm. And it could have, if it wasn't, you know, helmed the way that it was, 
there is a large possibility that it could have crashed and burned. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of magical that it didn't. And I think that has a lot to do with the creators that you mentioned who were part of this. Like, looking back on this, I I told Dave off mic, um, every time I look back at the list of creators, there's always another name that pops out to me that, like, how did I not see this person before? Yeah, yeah. And it always feels like there's more on top of it. Uh, Some of the writers I want to spotlight, we already said Scott Lobdell, Fabian Nicieza. Uh, Mark Wade was a... I had completely forgotten that he was doing the, I believe, the scripts for Alpha and Omega. Yeah. And, I mean, Mark Wade's one of my favorite creators of all time. And to look into this and be like, oh, from the very beginning of my comic fandom, like, he was there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy. Uh, we also have another name I want to bring out, Larry Hama. Big fan of Larry Hama in here as well. Uh, when it comes to artists... I want to spotlight uh, Roger Cruz is not a name that I, you know, see a whole lot. He doesn't get a lot of play, but he does some incredible work in this event. Uh, Joe Monterera is also fantastic in this. Tony Estaniel, Salvador LaRocca, who is just ridiculously talented, is also in this. Uh, Carlos Pacheco was a name that I found just this time looking for you know re-looking at those creator names and that's not even you know you know cracking the surface of all of the other creators that are involved in this event and it's crazy to me like looking back and how um i guess looking at certain events today and how much like not uh I guess just how much micromanaging kind of goes into an event to have this many people working on this. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a fascinating window, too, into, like, Marvel transitioning from sort of an old guard of creators through the night, like the early, the the first half, I guess, of the 90s, and into tapping into the new talent that's going to become some of the biggest name in comics. Um, Because, yeah, like you're saying, like, when I read this the first time, I doubt I knew hardly any of these names um maybe a handful but now when i look through it i'm like basically every creator involved has gone on to do something really interesting <laughs> you know yeah, um, and you know sure. some names you, you didn't call out here like in the writer's sphere you know you said wade you've got jeff loeb doing a series you've got mm-hmm. warren ellis doing a series here um you've got uh steve scroach steve epting on art like like everybody involved in the making of age of not everybody but almost everybody involved in the making of age of apocalypse like nothing it's none of their best work but they're all like young and hungry enough that it's interesting and it's exciting and you can see then these creators go on to do often some of the most interesting stuff in comics um so it really is this fascinating window into it's kind of a minor miracle where Marvel just hits. Because if you look, again, like if you're reading just sort of, you know, obviously in the Mind of Fear Club, we do this journey of year by year through the essential stuff. You hit these stretches, especially in the mid-90s, where like the talent is not what it was, okay? Like yeah. clearly there's a struggle <laughs> because, you know, you have all these big names in the early 90s and then they go, you know, the Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, these these characters, they go and found Image, right? And now all of a sudden there's there's more competition. It's harder to establish the talent. Age of Apocalypse, you would know none of that because everybody here, it looks like Marvel's fully on top <laughs> of, of, of like maintaining and cultivating new creative talent on, on their biggest books. Um, and again, like, 
I don't I don't know that like I don't like Age of Apocalypse is not like you know objectively some masterpiece you know like Watchmen or, or like from <laughs> Hell or something, but it is so solidly of a of a piece and of a purpose of just exploring this dystopia, but also like you know there's a grimness to it because it's Apocalypse's dystopia and there are some horrors and there's genocide and and there are some genuinely bad things but also it's a superhero comic and it's X-Men comics and it's not taking any of that too seriously and it's not mm-hmm. really trying to engage with any of the difficult conversations <laughs> that can actually follow yeah. these things in real life and it's better <laughs> for it because it would fall on its face if it did. You know, like it, it cannot have those conversations and it does not try to. It just does the superhero X-Men version of this. Um, and I'm not saying comics never should do that. Some should and some can and some will do it brilliantly. The Age of Apocalypse does not and it does not need to. And it just kind of stays with like, what is the energy of trying to work our way out of this dystopia? You know, that's it. That's all it yeah. is. And every series they aren't like super interconnected necessarily, but they all mm-hmm. give you different versions of characters in this world, and they all give you little journeys that ultimately build towards the MacGuffin of recovering the Emkron crystal and trying yeah. to get everybody the heck out of the Age of Apocalypse. You know, they're trying to end this reality to restore the the world where Professor Rex lived. Um, and and one thing we talked about when I, and I was surprised when I was kind of reviewing this. Age of Apocalypse and Legion Quest were actually teased a bit as the death of Professor X story, you know, and you mentioned, okay. so like there are promos of like the wheelchair falling over and like the yeah. X fading. And I had never thought of it as a death of Professor X story, you know, his presence and his app, I guess his absence actually, like you said, in the animated one man's worth is the focal point in so many ways, right. but it's also just kind of a ghost, right? It's just kind of in the background yeah. and it's not it's not really about Professor X. It's more just like, here's what would have happened without him. Um, but when you consider in the context of like post-death of Superman, post-almost-death of Batman, right, with Nightfall and that stuff, <laughs> it is like Marvel's trying to do a death of event with the leader of their mutants. Um, they just kind right. of like, in doing that, tap into something, frankly, even better, <laughs> which is this wild <laughs> alternate reality. Uh, and it all, yeah, it just works like, so so incredibly well I, I again i can't get over like going back especially that alpha issue where it's just like i'm in it and i love it i love so much about this world and the way these characters are written it's it's really incredible stuff when, again especially when you consider like x-men comics kind of needed this kick in the pants too like I... again they're big at this point but they're also kind of stuck and 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 getting a little repetitive and you see that the second they get out of this and go into onslaught um age of apocalypse is just such a breath of fresh air it works wonderfully yeah totally agree and i think the one of the big parts that makes that alpha issue sing so well is its focus on kind of the major players of the event as a whole you know you've got your apocalypse of course and with the absence of charles xavier magneto steps up into this role as the leader of the X-Men, which, again, like you said, wasn't like some revolutionary, it's never been done before. But with the status of Magneto in the 90s, it was kind of a revolutionary thing because the 90s was very much about Magneto is a bad guy. His nuance is gone. There is just him. He's ripping the metal out of Wolverine's body. In one of just the most horrifying covers I've ever seen, like as a kid, (laughs) 
freaked me out. And so having him now turn around and be like the leader of the X-Men, being together with Rogue, uh, was huge for me as a kid. Where I'm like, oh, I don't understand this at all. They don't like each other in the animated series. What's going on here? <laughs> and, you know, alongside them, there are these not necessarily minor players, but players who work a little bit more on the peripheral. We've got your Mr. Sinister, who kicks off his involvement, kicks off multiple events for different X books. Right. We've got, obviously, Bishop is our man out of time, the only person who remembers the previous reality and is the driving force and the catalyst to get this story going, and is the guy who's like, no, 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 you guys don't understand, like, look at my mind, there is a whole other world going on, mm -hmm. and so those are kind of like the major players when it comes to getting things rolling and really kind of getting into Mr. Sinister. He is this incredible, like invisible hand when it comes to the events of different books, X, X-Man, uh, Factor X, you know, all of these books that are books that people remember when it comes to the, you know, the actual legacy of the story and the books that people will go to when they're like, Oh, you should read this tie-in when it comes to the uh the world as it you know as it stands mm -hmm. but something that is really cool alongside like these major players is all of these role reversals for different characters i mean the one that or i guess the two that always stick out to me cyclops as a prelate of mr sinister and sabertooth Sabretooth as one of the main heavy hitters of the X-Men with yeah. Wildchild, yeah. having these characters swap roles, certain characters are wildly different from their 616 counterparts. Kitty Pride in this uh in this reality as Shadowcat is just it's a night and day change from the Kitty Pride who was in the X-Men comics at that point in the 90s. So one of the most interesting things for me is seeing just how much this alternate history has affected the characters and changed them fundamentally. Right. Right. No, for sure. I mean, yeah, I do think there's a, you know, you mentioned all the ways this could have gone wrong and it it would have been so easy for there to be sort of this fundamental goofiness or or over the top ham-fisted in like hey you know remember uh kitty pride and, and nightcrawler the two sweetest <laughs> kindest x-men characters you love <laughs> well now they're dark and vengeful but it's like it works in the context of this world you see the rationale and the reasons why they would have to be grimmer and tougher and yeah. and so focused on survival um and it's it's really sold fairly effectively you know the the variations in character are slight but they are significant and and easy to follow, you know. And I think too to your to your first points there, I think one of the things the Age of Apocalypse is best at, and one of the reasons it, you know, if you're gonna call something an age of a villain, right? It's an age of a villain, or it's gonna be a villain centric event. That villain has to be pretty stinking cool, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like they have to they have to be able to hold that title. This has happened infrequently through Marvel history. You know, you have Emperor <laughs> Doom, for example. Doctor Doom yep. is my favorite villain of all time in any media. One of the best. And he sure. can hold it, right? He can hold that weight. Obviously, Thanos with Infinity Gauntlet, it's not named for him, but same same idea, right? With Apocalypse, going into this, I don't know, like, in 1994, that it would have been super clear that he could do it, that he could hold that territory. But Age of Apocalypse makes it work, and it makes Apocalypse incredibly intimidating and yeah. and as a leader 
of an uh you know basically an american dystopia very believable like it feels like For it sure. feels like apocalypse was always destined to hold this sort of position over the marvel universe and they don't talk about it a ton in here but it's like this is an X-Men comic, but it's also a Marvel Universe comic. Apocalypse yeah. conquered all the heroes. You know, it's not just that there's this division between humanity and mutant kind. It's like we see in some of the, the you know, the ephemera and some of the supplemental issues, like Spider-Man's dead. You know, Gwen Stacy's trying to carry on his legacy. Like, like Apocalypse all of a sudden rises to this level of being truly menacing and one of the biggest threats in the entire Marvel Universe. And again, he shows up somewhat infrequently you know apocalypse only shows up like in pretty calculated doses but when he does it's a big flipping deal and i think that's that's the same thing that all the best marvel villains can pull off right thanos will send lackeys he'll send the blood brothers in first but you know that when he shows up it's a big flipping deal and and that's exactly what apocalypse pulls off here again like this is the coolest and and most intimidating this character has ever been and when i think about apocalypse and i think about why i love the character i'm thinking of age of apocalypse i'm not sure. thinking of um extinction uh not extinction agenda um oh executioner song right uh, yeah. and, and same with mr sinister here mr sinister is so calculating he's one of the horsemen of apocalypse he's one of the prelates he has this inside track and this connection but he's also scheming for himself and that's again when i think of mr sinister that's, that's the sinister it. i'm yeah. thinking of you know and it that that one doesn't just come from age of apocalypse because there's like inferno's a really good sinister story um mm -hmm. again he has his little schemes in in executioner's song and etc cetera, etc cetera. um but there's just these moments of like letting the villain shine and then like you said magneto too where if you started with claremont and lee 1991 x-men number one you wouldn't have seen good yeah. magneto you wouldn't have seen nuanced <laughs> magneto so that is in and of itself a nice like a nice return to like yeah magneto could lead the x-men but he would be grimmer and darker than professor x you know one thing that never really quite gets addressed here in these pages, at least, I think there's been some some post, you know, original Age of Apocalypse revisits that we can talk about or not. But um, is kind of like, well, okay, so Professor X dies, and he doesn't found the X Men, but Magneto did found the X Men in his memory. How did Apocalypse still take over? Like, there's a there's a failure that hangs over Magneto's head throughout this, yeah. um, both in dramatic irony and then presented to him directly when Bishop shows up as the man out of time who remembers the way things should have been, and it's like. Magneto, he does a fine job here leading the X-Men, but clearly he failed spectacularly <laughs> because when, <laughs> when in the world where he takes over, Apocalypse wins and things go horribly wrong. So I, I find that layer intriguing as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because if you kind of track Apocalypse's journey through, you know, his inception up till now, you know, he is taken... I think incredibly seriously in the initial X Factor run. Yeah. But after that, you know, with Executioner Song, you know, it's not it's not something that I always go back to is like, oh, this is an essential apocalypse story. Mm -hmm. But like Age of Apocalypse absolutely is, because he's treated, like you said, as the the final boss of the video game. Like yeah, right. you're about to see, you know, 24 health bars like this is what you're gonna have to deal with <laughs> yeah. and having magneto be this 
this leader of the X-Men who I think at the time it wasn't, you know, in vogue to be like, oh, you know, Professor X has some bad dealings and maybe he's not a good dude all the time. You know, having an X an X team that was oftentimes in conflict with Magneto, they're characters who you know, our usual mainstays yeah. in the main X-Men book, Gambit, Jean Grey, uh, Wolverine, who are not part of the main X-Men roster in this Age of Apocalypse because of butting heads with Magneto. Right. And I think that's something that's really interesting about the team and about Magneto as, you know, in this role as a leader. Him and Rogue are together, which again, will never not be weird to me. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a strange... It's a strange visual that I can't, for some reason, get my mind past. But they have a son. Their son's name's Charles. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, it's incredible. And then you've got, you know, different character relationships. You know, Gambit is always going to be lusting after Rogue. But the whole, you know, idea of him going off and making this whole adventure on his own is really cool. We have the relationship between Quicksilver and Storm, which is a relationship that I... 100% would never in my wildest dreams ever, like, think of. Yeah. But having the two of them be, like, the co-leaders of their own X-Men team is really cool. And you get to see all of these really inc just wild relationships build up between different characters. And you see them explored in the various tie-ins. You know, different books were canceled and then relaunched. Um do you have any favorite tie-ins when it comes to the event itself? Because I know that there are plenty, but again, like you said earlier, they're so tightly told. They're only four issues, and it allows you to get that pocket of their corner of the event without overstaying its welcome. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, I... I do genuinely have time for all of them. And again, because it's not, because they don't overstay their welcome, I think that helps. Um, the ones that probably stand out the most to me on a reread um generation next actually yes. the four issues yes. from, from lobdell but especially from you get chris Pacello on art and so lobdell and Pacello they had just launched generation x um the new book in the x-men line of like a new set of actually like surprisingly for the 90s diverse new characters yeah. and, and kid care like teen characters that are actually going to be going to school and it's going to be led by emma frost and, and banshee and it's one of these like still a bit underrated 90s series that is really good especially when bacello's on there because his style is so uh so cool it's so visually yeah it's stimulating and it's kind of outlandish at times but then you know other times it's like just kind of like there's almost a grotesqueness to it in an age of apocalypse they really get to lean into that with just some weird stuff right this is yeah. where you get sugar man and you get the these sugar sort of man. torture pits and it's it's all very <laughs> mid 90s but in a way that i just find so entertaining and again like i was a kid during this time so maybe it's just there's some of that that's just baked into my dna um, but yeah, Generation Next definitely works, and, and you get this hulking Colossus, this this Hulk like the, the terrifying. size, terrifying Colossus. Like he's genuinely scary. You have Kitty Pride again as Kate Pride here, which she's wearing the Wolverine claws on her hands all the time. She's out <laughs> for blood, right? And just like right off the bat, they're like, "This is a no nonsense. We're not messing around." Kind of series. Um, yeah. The other ones that that I, I you know one that I I don't know that I love it, but I always find myself really captivated by it is x-man itself yes so, totally x-man's written by jeff Loeb. you got steve scrochi on art 
um, who's gone on to do some of like my favorite stuff of the 2010s, at least artistically. I think is, is a really great visualist. Um, but they they redefined Cable here as Nate Gray as the X Man. Um, in such a way, in such a way that fans were like, we need more cable. <laughs> there was already a cable <laughs> ongoing and X-Men was such a, a hit that then he gets his own series post age of apocalypse, this alternate reality cable who never is called cable, right? But he's X-Men Nate nope. Gray. <laughs> and because he, he never has to go through the, the techno organic transformation, right? That series goes for 75 issues after age of yeah. apocalypse. It Ugh. is one of the most mind boggling, mind boggling stats in Marvel history that X-Men goes forever. But when when you read these first four issues, like they're just strange in all the right ways where it's like X-Man with this traveling troubadour theater group, troop. theater yeah. troop of Forge and Sauron and Mr. Sinister gets heavily involved. So we get to see him scheming, which I always am, am very interested in. Um, so, yeah, that that book and then X-Man becomes like he's like kind of the key to this whole yeah. thing because he has the power to fight Apocalypse, to fight, you know, another new character, Holocaust, Apocalypse's son in this, um, who's desperate for his dad's approval and, and to be one of the, the final horsemen and all that. Um, but yeah, I, I actually think X-Men works quite well. And then, and, and the core, the core X-Men stuff, the amazing X-Men stuff. I, of course. I, you know, any, any, any scenes with Magneto, like this version of Magneto, Age of Apocalypse Magneto, is the best Magneto of the 90s. Um, so cool. I, I just love him, you know, and, and I, I love those sequences and sort of the sacrifice that he's working towards. Um, and it, it, go back to one thing you you said before before we started talking tie-ins. You know, you mentioned how, like, in the 90s, like, this isn't really Professor X is a jerk territory. You know, I think, yeah. like, like we are living <laughs> in 2022 and, and for the past couple of years, probably really since House and Powers, right? There's a there's a common consensus of like if Professor X is shady and he's done yeah. horrible things through his history, right? When you look at the the history of Professor X, it's like he is a great leader of sorts who has done good things, but he has a very checkered past to say the yes. least. And the, 1995, it's not really that kind of era for him, at least not yet. Um, I think a sp the animated series has a ton to do with this because the animated series version mm -hmm. is deified. Is saint. Yeah, it's deified yeah. Professor X. This is peak dream of Professor X era. of Like everything from Claremont and Lee 1991 X-Men, it is peak I have a dream Professor X of humans and mutants living together. Truly, like that yeah. is so celebrated and held so sacred in X-Men comics during this time. And I think that's actually a big part of what makes Age of Apocalypse work is is a true conviction that if that dream got shattered, everything would devolve into dystopia in the X-Men <laughs> comics. And we don't really live in that consensus anymore with X-Men comics, yeah. to say the least, if you've read House and Powers, right? We know that not to be true. <laughs> um, but at this time, that was a big deal. That was a big deal to be like, yeah, if his dream falls apart, you know, all of humanity is going to have to escape to Europe. Like, that was, that was how they <laughs> sold it, you know? Well, and I think there's... Uh... I think that also has to do with a little bit of desensitization because he's died so many times since this yeah. that it's every single time it's like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Oh, we just carry on. Yeah, yeah. And everyone changes sometimes for the better. I always and... laughed at a Messiah complex. Yes. Because <laughs> when I read that the first time, there's a moment in there that feels like it should be a huge deal with Professor X. And then, like, 
it's just very quickly not. <laughs> it's just <laughs> very rapidly not the the death of sequence that it appears to be. Um, but yeah, no, you're spot on. What what are your what are your favorite tie-ins? What are the ones that you dig the most? Well, it's funny because you you touched on three. I had I had four listed here, and you touched on three of them. Uh, X Man was probably the first tie-in I read yeah. with this. Um, obviously, got a lot of problems with. Uh, with the writer just on a on a human level oh yeah but <laughs> there's there's a bunch you know that we i celebrated the creative you know talent here and it's there there's a lot of creators who have since gone on to have big problems here right you got jeff yeah, love you got warren ellis people. and you got scott lovedale involved if you don't yeah. know what i'm talking about google it um google they it. all have their problems and and they're notable and worth discussing for sure yeah and and it's it's strange because you know as as someone who enjoyed the work of you know a jeff Loeb and other you know creators on this who have gone on to be just you know terrible people it's it's funny to go back maybe not funny but it's interesting to go back and kind of read these stories almost through that lens but x-man i always had this this image of just adoring it it's very much a D campaign mm, where it's yeah. like this kid is with his traveling theater group and oh no he's the messiah like it's it's one of those stories that because of how good it was everyone is like oh i need me some more of nate gray i need me some more of young hot cable <laughs> and, and, and we, we did would... not spoiler alert we did not actually <laughs> <laughs> And we continued to like, you know, Nate Gray became, you know, a big character for decades. We even just had, you know, prior, just prior to Hawkspox, we had the Age of X-Man. Yeah, yeah. Like Came all back. of this, you know, he became a mainstay legacy character. Amazing X-Men by Fabian Nicieza and Kubert was really great. Again, it was the, uh, it was really the uh, Quicksilver Storm book. With everybody going around, they face off against Abyss, who is the coolest designed yeah. horseman out of all of them. You you mentioned or- earlier how this is maybe the coolest set of horsemen. I'm I'm here to tell you, this is the coolest Apocalypse horsemen <laughs> have ever been by far. the The way Age of Apocalypse actually identifies that, like, hey, what if we made these like personalities? Because prior yes. to this point, the horsemen were just like, they were just the sort of figurative mythological, you know, famine, pestilence, death, and war. They were given very little personality, with the exception of Angel, who's a known character. And right. here we get Abyss, new character, but immediately has the 90s cool. So cool. Such a great design. You get Mikhail Rasputin, who has a mm-hmm. fascinating power set, and of course the Rasputin ties with Colossus and Ileana. You get um, Holocaust, the son of Apocalypse, yep. another big-time 90s design, not to mention 90s name. And then, uh, who am I missing? Mr. Sinister, right? Yeah. Um, so it's like, the hor- they've never reached this level of cool sense. I doubt they ever will. I my I was originally introduced, not originally, but um the the X Men Legends uh, Apocalypse game. I don't know if you played that one. Yes, that one features these horsemen. It does basically Age of Apocalypse stuff. So That's I right. I grew up thinking like, oh, the horsemen are this always the, the coolest. Yeah. yeah, like this is the team, and it's really just here. <laughs> um, so sorry to cut you off. I, ha- I had to say no, no, no. Horsemen are so amazing. Yeah, no, but you're absolutely right. Like this is. In the same way that Apocalypse is treated as this, you know, world-threatening threat, the the horsemen, each of them are so different from each other as well, which I think you have to 
take a look at when you look at a lot of horsemen rosters it's like oh we all kind of do the same thing or mm-hmm. we're all kind of on the same page none of these horsemen get along which is incredibly like engaging yeah abyss is this wild card mr sinister is always mr sinister this was my first experience to like sassy sarcastic mr sinister yeah because he always has a quip he always has a quip to question holocaust who is not just he's he's biff is who holocaust is he is (laughs) this big dumb guy who wants you know wants approval and is just not in a position emotionally to receive it or to achieve it (laughs) yeah right and then like you said there's mikhail rasputin who is this who is a character who doesn't always get the kind of reverence that i think the brother of colossus should probably get yeah but his whole play in this is really cool as well and then you get besides that you get you know the generals underneath you mentioned generation next which is my i it's it's tied with another one for my favorite out of them having and i you you said that you've said this before on your podcast and you said it again here is his name pronounced Bacello? so i i looked it up at one point and i'm like 80 percent sure that that's what i read and I'm I'm oh rolling God. with it. If you don't feel confident, okay. with no, my, I have, my I have research, for no problems. I have always just said Bacalo. Yeah, yeah, that sounded right to me. Uh-huh. But I remember I was listening to your podcast. And you said Bacello at one point, and I was like, Oh no! I had this like existential crisis about it, <laughs> and so I've been wanting to ask you about it. I, I get so many names wrong so often Same. and i apologize to all of them but that one i did do some research on so i in my head i think i'm right <laughs> if i'm not somebody tell me please <laughs> but yeah i i love that generation next book i'm i'm a big chamber stan okay so sure. i've always been a fan of john of stars more and seeing him with an actual face was really fun yeah, sure uh that team is also really dynamic as well with this Almost Mass Effect 2 style. We're going to the pits. We're going on the suicide mission to rescue Ilyana Rasputin. And if you read this book, Sugar Man is the most terrifying figure (laughs) in the entire Age of Apocalypse. And it is not followed up on with this abject horror of this character Mm -hmm. in any of his other appearances. Whether it's the, you know, uh, Age of Apocalypse Omega where he just hops out of Colossus's boot. (laughs) At one point, no, or him just kind arguably of... the funniest moment in this entire event is, because is if tiny you little sugar man hopping out of that boot. <laughs> because if you don't read Generation Next, you have no idea or no, context, no point right? of reference for what is this little goblin man who was just jumped out of this boot and now hopped into the six one six. But in Generation Next, he is this straight up boogeyman. You just see him mostly in shadow, you know, lording over these uh, slave pits. It's terrifying. Yeah. And then how that book goes is not at all how I expected. It. And it's tragic in a way, getting into how that book ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my, I think, tied for Generation Next with my favorite, it's Factor X. Okay. Because I am I am a diehard Cyclops guy, Uh John Francis Moore writes, Steve Epting and Terry Dodson on art. I really dig this as a villain-centric book. Mm-hmm. It's the it's one of the few books that it's like, let's put a spotlight on the the you know, the underlings, the villains. It's that nine to five, we're the bad guys kind of book yeah. where 
You've got the two Summers brothers, Cyclops and Havoc. You've got the Guthries, always a fan of Sam Guthrie Cannonball, and his sister, who is in here, Elizabeth, as Amazon. Uh, we have Paige Guthrie in the Generation Next book. And then you have the Bedlam brothers, who are just those guys who, after your work shift, are like, yeah, let's go to a bar, let's get a couple drinks and fight some people. Mm-hmm. Like, they are the guys you want rolling with you into any kind of non uh not safe situation and having just kind of the day-to-day of them like dealing with also dark beast and having them give us this uh this window into how everything in the hierarchy works you know they answer to sinister who answers to apocalypse and you get to see them with him scheming a little bit we get more information on where x-man came from because Jean gray was a was an experiment of Sinisters who Cyclops freed. And now we get to see, oh, Cyclops, yeah, he's the leader of the prelates and he's the, you know, the numero uno to Havoc's numero dos under the regime of Sinister. Mm -hmm. But we get to see that he might not be all that terrible. He might be, you know, the guy who ends up saving people and having that dichotomy. The betrayal is awesome. I get, I love the idea of it doesn't make any sense, like, on a power scaling sense, but I always love seeing Havoc versus Cyclops whenever it comes to ideologies, when it comes to battles. So that's always kind of been my favorite. But any of the times, like you said, all of them should be read to get a full scope of the world yeah. and can be read without feeling like you are getting into, you know, as much as I love Secret Wars... All of the tie-ins that go into that uh, that event, it can feel exhausting, and I don't, yeah. I didn't feel like rereading it for this. It ever felt exhausting rereading through all of them. Yeah, no, and that's that's that efficiency we talked about at the very beginning. You know, I do think you're right too. Like with Factor X, and it's very, it's a very important book, and it's a very important idea in the Age of Apocalypse because you have to, for this world to work, you have to have good mutants turn bad, right? Yeah. And I think it's a challenge that the book faces because the temptation is to put all of our favorites uh, on Magneto's X-Men and have them rebelling, even though Apocalypse's quote-unquote dystopia is kind of a mutant utopia. Like, we don't don't actually, like, it's not, you know, because that's not quite the vision, (laughs) but it's like it is a mutant supremacist takeover. Um, You do have to have some mutants who favor a mutant takeover. And and, and, and in this alternate reality, you know, like, Sam Guthrie is great. I love Sam Guthrie in Earth 616. In the Age of Apocalypse, like, you're not rooting for him, right? Obviously, Beast is the the clearest example where Hank McCoy becomes full-on Dark Beast. And that transformation is really important in selling, like, this is a different reality. You're bouncing bubbly Beast is here a, (laughs) you know, working with Mr. Sinister and experimenting on mutants in... If not as scary as Sugar Man's sort of scenarios, like some yeah. some gross stuff, right? Beast is doing. He gross doesn't stuff. hop out of anybody's boots, so he's <laughs> he's docked a couple points for that. But he does escape to uh, to six one six, just like Sugar Absolutely. Man, you know, at the end of this. Um, but yeah, I I do think that's important. I think you know, Havoc in every sort of alternate reality or event with mind control always winds up on the wrong side, which is hilarious to me. Uh, He does it in Inferno. He does it in Extinction Agenda. And obviously he he does it here. And then he does it later in Axis. Like Havoc is just always, he's always on the wrong side, which, (laughs) which cracks me up. Um, But yeah. And then with Cyclops, you know, it does lead to an interesting journey for him where 
he's the mutant having the are we the baddies <laughs> conversation <laughs> and revelation, <laughs> right? And and by the end of this, he finally comes around. Um, so yeah, no, I just I I love the ways, and we haven't even, you know we it's like you know you can talk about each reimagined character we haven't even talked about hardly like wolverine and gene gray yeah being a couple weapon and x. going out on their own as weapon x which is great and it's it's funny too how like very small details and i think the designs here are by joe mad primarily but it's just like convention yeah just wolverine missing a hand and missing it's like hand. somehow his adamantium hand got cut off that alone is like really flipping cool <laughs> it's like it really sells this being a different kind of world you know and like oh he does he's missing three of his claws it's like a small thing, but an important thing, and and it works. Absolutely, and when it comes to you know, like you said, the little details, it does a great job in fleshing out the world, making it feel lived in. I'm a huge fan of really tight and good world building, mm -hmm. and what the Age of Apocalypse does is not just tell its world building through the narrative or through the outside setting, but through the characters. You mentioned. Uh, Wolverine is missing a hand, or Weapon X here, because Wolverine is a completely different character who just has a ponytail, and he's <laughs> he's strange. Yeah. But Weapon X, like, he's missing his hand. It's like, oh, how did that happen? And then you take a detour over to Factor X, Cyclops is missing an eye and has three scratch marks yeah, over yeah, it. Right. Hmm, I wonder how that happened. And it's like, they never really at any point say, oh, that dastardly Weapon X scratched out my eye, or that pre-late Summers, you know, took my hand. But you can connect the dots because of not just their history in the, uh, in the wider Marvel U, but also in this story. Mm -hmm. Like, the mainstay uh, love triangle was, of course, Cyclops, Wolverine, Jean Grey. So obviously, something must have happened because the heart wants what it wants, regardless of what reality we're yeah, in. Yeah. And the fact that those character choices are taken into account goes into why those designs work so well. And as you said, they are ridiculously 90s. Like, the amount of pouches is insane <laughs> in these character designs. But you also get, you mentioned earlier, Magneto is one of the best versions of Magneto we have ever seen. That design for Magneto with the two tassels on e either side and the long hair and the ponytail, that that's one of the first action figures I remember getting as a kid. It's the still to me the coolest Magneto design right up until I would say probably his uh, House of X Powers of Ten design. Yeah, my I'm favorite a sucker for the all white. My favorite, I do love the all white. That's great. My my favorite action figure as a kid was the AOA Nightcrawler costume with that giant so flame cool. sword <laughs> I, don't, yes. I don't know why his sword is on fire in that action figure <laughs> but that was the right decision because boy did i love that and still do um yeah spot on i i think the designs kind of in some ways sort of speak to you know there's a there's a perception i think among audiences now that 90s comics are well one that they're bad which is like yeah. okay that's that's too broad <laughs> some are some aren't um but also there's a perception of the art just being like so overstuffed and and over kinetic and just like yeah. an edge of like I'm gonna try to draw something cool and I don't care if it makes sense. There's a, there's a perception of that yes. that is rooted in some truth, right? There are certain things that are correct, but one thing that's fascinating about the Age of Apocalypse is where we are in Marvel history and the artists that we have involved. We're moving away from like poor man's Jim Lee impersonations on the art yes. side, which do feel overstuffed and crowded and, and visually unappealing a lot of times and moving into, especially with like an artist like Joe Mad, more manga influenced, um, mm -hmm. sort of like just like 
doing more fun things with proportions. But it, like if you, you know, I've got the omnibus in front of me right now, and I would assume that if I was flipping through this, it'd be a lot of panels of these overstuffed pages that are actually kind of exhausting to read. And the layouts in this are actually much cleaner really than the road nice. to this point, uh, which is super appealing. And I, I, I don't know exactly how that, like, if that was an editorial decision, if Marvel's actually moving away from that, or if it's just pure coincidental luck with who's involved. Um, but it, it's it's a big part of why this reads so much more efficiently is because it's not overstuffed uh, in quite the way that 90s comics often are to this point. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a consistency with it too. Like you look at a lot of, because what's, what's really, I think you said striking about the X-Men Alpha is a lot of the beginning of that, where it's just those big wide shots of the world and how bad it looks. Mm -hmm. And then you can flip to something like a Generation Next, which is different artist. And the layout is still very broad. You're able to kind of take into account everything that you're seeing. So there's a consistency across the line, regardless of what book, regardless of what team's on it, where it is very uh, visually appealing throughout and there's no hard breaks. Obviously, there are different art styles that are going to be in every book, but you get to see this baseline and this DNA through each book of a consistent world, which is helpful to set it up as part of this interconnected story. And we we didn't mention in the tie-ins, you know, Weapon X as the story of Logan and uh, Jean Grey going, actually going to Europe. We get to see what's going on outside of the U S and, everything that's crumbling out there. So there's a lot of world building that goes into these stories and goes into this event as a whole that makes this story just sing from start to finish. Yeah. And even though, you know, there is a definitive end after those four months, we get that X-Men Omega, which again is just so good. I mean, we get Magneto armoring himself up with all of the pieces he stripped off of apocalypse. He gets, he it's it's a it's incredible and then we get like a definitive end to this world or so we think Mm -hmm. by the end of this you know there's this whole another tie-in that we didn't mention gambit and the externals which may not may not be like the best out of the tie-ins but it's incredibly important Mm -hmm. it's another you know suicide mission to take this ragtag team across the universe to go get the macron crystal and try to set the world right and really you know rereading it it's based off of a hunch it's magneto's like we need to get we need to send you all the way across the universe to get this to see if bishop's true if he's right (laughs) Right, on what he's talking about it's not even like hey we're gonna fix it like this is just to validate his claims and then they go from there but it becomes this whole you know sprawling story and one thing that i can say about all of the tie-ins is none of them end where you expect them to none of them feel paint by numbers Mm -hmm. which is really good and that feeds into the ending of the story where the world is set back the world is you know for the most part doesn't remember it's that classic you know uh psycho pirate at the end of christ on infinite earth like oh i remember yeah worlds live worlds died all this stuff but you do get some carryovers following the event x-man dark beast holocaust and sugar man all make their way into the 616 Mm -hmm. to varying degrees of success and the 
the event as a whole has had a lasting legacy. You've you said, you know, this is still one of your favorite and one of the best events that Marvel has ever done. Mm-hmm. Out, you know, forget just X-Men comics. As a huge crossover event, this story has staying power and it has legs. And we saw that with, you know, in 2005, we got this 10th anniversary one-shot and then miniseries where it's like all flashbacks, all showing, you know, stuff leading up to the events of the main, you know, Age of Apocalypse story, which is testament to how good the world building is in the story that you can tell all of these other stories and they continue to you know call back to it exiles is a prime example yeah. you have blink who is a i don't think was ever treated like a big deal in age of apocalypse but became a much bigger deal afterwards yeah. her saber tooth that's still one of my favorite saber tooth just treatments when it comes to design when it comes to character work he is incredible um they touched back on it in one of my favorite comic runs of all time uncanny Mm x-force where they had the dark angel saga where they're like we gotta go back we gotta figure out what's going on why is this still here and then from there getting the ongoing series crossovers with extreme x-men and then finally kind of having its last Maybe not the last hurrah because of how much they changed it, but in Secret Wars, mm-hmm. we got to see, you know, bits and pieces of it. My One of my favorite, I just talked about how exhausting all of the tie-ins were for Secret Wars, but one of my favorites was the Star-Lord and Kate Pride crossover, where Star-Lord from 616 runs into Age of Apocalypse Kate pride Mm -hmm. and at this point he was just still in a relationship with kitty Mm -hmm. it's like why don't you love me she's like i don't even know you (laughs) and we also you know get a whole apocalypse uh region of battle world that's ruled over by apocalypse you know uh dr nemesis is a major player and cypher doug who has gotten a ton of play since hawkspox is more or less the main character of that so the event has and i'm sure this is a surprise to no one has you know this place in the comic book crossover hall of fame as one of the best treated and one of the best i think most revered out of all of the events that we've gotten before or since yeah completely agree i i do love one of the things that is most interesting to me about the legacy is i guess twofold one that it hasn't been overexploited. You know, typically yeah. when you have something that fans like, Marvel will overexploit that thing. <laughs> and with Age of Apocalypse, it is somewhat sporadic, surprisingly. You know, you mentioned yeah. pretty much all the examples you mentioned. That's like the full scope of where you can find more Age of Apocalypse stuff. And that's great because a lot of it's good and it's limited. You know, and like you said, I love Exiles. I love Uncanny X-Force. And then as a part of Secret Wars, it makes a ton of sense. Um, the other piece of legacy that I is a similar sort of trajectory, which is this idea of the quote unquote canceling everything to do an event to fully yeah. commit, and that's the piece of it that that you know I talked about in my own stuff. But like, it it shows a level of commitment and it shows a level of seriousness about what you're about to do. That even if it falls on its face, it is gonna it, you're sending the message that like we're really doing this and we're really going to try to tell a great story within this structure. Marvel actually hasn't done that a lot. Um, yeah. They they do it with Secret Wars 2015, which is my my favorite actual. That's actually my favorite 
big two superhero event of all time. Um, Same. And, and a huge part of that is not necessarily the event so much as the build, you know, the, the human universe journey to that point, and then it functioning right. as payoff. I think it works incredibly well. Age of Apocalypse is, like, in the conversation for, like, two, maybe three for me. Um, they do it, again, with Hox Pox, right? Where they're yeah. like, we're canceling all the X-Books. Here's Hox Pox. And, again, obviously, that is a fantastic, fantastic read. But it's also, like, there's a level of commitment. There's a level of buy-in when Marvel sends that message. Those are, like, the only times. Like, 1995, 2015, 2019. Like, the only times they've sent that message. And you could point to other sort of semi-close things like house of m in 2005 you know where right. a lot of st- like when a lot of stuff becomes a tie-in in an event it's a it's mm-hmm. a similar but it's not the same it's really not the same yeah. as like we're full-on doing this this alternate reality you cannot buy your normal stuff during this time you have to take part <laughs> in this or go away um which can be obviously kind of in your face it can be kind of controversial for, sure. for fans that don't want to deal with that um but <laughs> but it, in these examples it's actually worked out incredibly well and it's something that i appreciate as a fan and i just i don't know i it's not that i want it to be overexploited. i don't i'm glad that it hasn't been for sure it's just funny looking back that like they you know when when events start taking off marvel isn't like we should we should be careful to not overdo events like (laughs) like obviously that approach has not taken there whereas with age of apocalypse style stuff they're still kind of scared to cancel a line and do a thing if they do it you know hoxpox for example even that was like that took selling from hickman that took buy-in on editorial and everyone's part to be like to not be nervous about doing that it's a big deal when they do because financially they know they're gonna potentially take a hit and that's the thing that scares them more than anything um so anyway when it happens it's it's exciting and it means that they're committed and uh luckily for us as fans like it's kind of always worked out like they've always been good (laughs) i guess because two of the three are hickman and then one is age of apocalypse right yeah, I mean that's batting three for three. That's a solid. Yeah. That's a solid record, and that's that's an excellent point. I didn't even think about that. It's to be brave enough to say I believe in this so much that we are going to get, we are willing to take as much hate as possible. When you're talking about uh, Age of Apocalypse, this is the microscope. This is you saying we are going to take because there I mean with any, you know, wine lie or wine lied, line wide uh runs when it comes to X-Men having multiple books, when it comes to, you know, all of these different characters, when you cancel them all and just consolidate that audience into one book, yeah. it is the tightrope you're walking is razor thin. And to be able to say we've done it three times and all three of them have worked out, it is remarkable. It's incredible. And the idea that we're going to make this feel like an event, because I think the the fatigue that a lot of people feel, myself included, uh, with a lot of like comic book events nowadays, it's like, okay, this is this is going to be a thing. It's like. Prime example, Dark Crisis is coming out. I'm very excited for the potential of Dark Crisis, focusing on these characters who, you know, may not get as much play in a normal event where all the major players are normally there. We just had, as we're recording this, Death of Justice League happen in uh, issue 75. But at the same time, Batman is still going off and doing Shadow War. We just announced a new Batman team where Bruce Wayne is going to be the main guy. And so there is a level of um, 
commitment that you mentioned that is not often seen or with just, events like just this. the internal consistency right is exactly thing where it's like this entire line is committed to all the characters doing the same things and living in the same yeah. world and it, it's one it is one of those things where it's like when you're reading comics for long enough you kind of get used to just ignoring it you know and you right. kind of get used to like well whatever i like this batman story so i'll just ignore everything else but i, <laughs> I do have to say like as a more obsessive compulsive reader you know Same. as somebody who <laughs> who loves a good internal consistency it's part of what the Krakoa era is so fun right now like part of what yeah. i still continue to adore about the Krakoa era is everyone's playing in the same chronology right everyone's playing yeah. with the same set of rules and you listen can you catch minor character things here and there yeah probably but it's not going to upset the general binge through all of these comics everyone's committed to to playing by the same rules and having characters doing similar things um so yeah i'm fully with you on that one like it does if you want to enjoy the full scope of a line or of a publisher it genuinely helps me for them to be like batman can't be on seven teams you know wolverine can't be on eight teams <laughs> all doing different things because when, when would he find time exactly and like it's become a running joke but it's also like i can laugh at that and i can have fun with it but I also don't want to read all those books. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. And, and that's been something that's been kind of nice with, for another example, um, Superman, Son of Kal-El, and Nightwing. Obviously, you're going to be playing the same set of rules. You're using the same writer. But the way that they are able to kind of weave through, like, okay, I'm going to go do this over here, and then I'm going to come back, and there is passage of time. Mm -hmm. Like, I absolutely appreciate that. I am an OCD reader as well when it comes to, like, I need stuff to make sense for my headcanon. Uh -huh. And the most exciting thing for me as a Marvel reader that I've ever really experienced was it's like, you can't read any other books. Secret Wars is happening. <laughs> yeah. And that is the only thing that's happening. Yeah. You can't just go off and find Captain America palling around somewhere else. Like you, If you want to see these characters, they need to be here. And that's something that's, I think as you said so eloquently, traces back to Age of Apocalypse. This is where it started. You know, the treatment of that, and if, again, we talked about, you know, if this had fallen flat on his face, this probably wouldn't have happened. This treatment probably wouldn't have worked. And having this overarching narrative for Marvel as a company, as a publisher, to say, okay, this worked, now we're going to apply it to the best comic book event of all time mm -hmm. in 2015, and then again, like you said, in 2019 with Hoxpox, that was... Again, a level of commitment that we don't often see. Mm -hmm. And if anything, that is definitely the legacy that Age of Apocalypse leaves behind when it comes to its greater impact on not just the X-Men, but as comics as a whole. Yeah. I think, so, I think the final part of its legacy, just to put a button on it too, is like yeah. the Marvel multiverse is obviously a big deal. We're recording this the weekend before Multiverse of Madness is going to drop, right? And it's going yeah. to not introduce, but certainly cement the Marvel Multiverse as like one of the biggest <laughs> things in culture. And for my money, the Age of Apocalypse alternate reality is my favorite Marvel alternate reality. And and there yeah. are so much, there's so much here, I think, in the legacy to sort of like say like, Okay, if we're going to do an alternate reality story, if we're going to play with the multiverse, what kinds of things do and don't work? And I think the thing that AOA does better than anything, and we talked about this, is like that perfect blend of familiar yet distinct and in kind of all 
driving towards like a clear summary of what is this alternate reality it is the dystopia where apocalypse rules america right that's it it's easy you can cat- yeah. you can categorize it you can say exactly what it is and then there's nuance and detail within that um I don't think I like any alternate realities more. <laughs> I like, like I like a multiverse story. There's good multiverse stuff out there. Obviously, I love Secret Wars. I love you know DC side. I love Grant Morrison's multiversity. There's great stuff out there. Um, but I don't think I like anything more than Age of Apocalypse purely in terms of like we built this one world and uh, and we did it well. You know. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I don't think there are, you know any other examples on the top of my head that have stayed that consistent and maybe that helps that it's only you know a four month you know a peek into this world yeah. but from start to finish there's no you know as much as we want to praise ultimate universe and as much praise as it absolutely deserves for certain characters certain storylines the legacy of the ultimate universe is its crash and fall mm-hmm. and i don't think that's ever going to be said about the age of apocalypse and so as we're wrapping up here, Dave, this has been a wonderful chat. Um, do you have anything you would like to plug? I'm going to leave the floor for you. Obviously, you have so many cool things going on. So please, the floor is yours if our listeners want to follow up with you and learn more about you and follow your stuff. Thanks. Yeah, no, this has been a blast. Uh, so people can find me at comicbookherald.com. You can find me on social at comicbookherald. I'm on Twitter and Instagram primarily. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. That's also Comic Book Herald. And the podcast, sorry, you can look for the Comic Book Herald podcast, or you can look for My Marvelous Year, where, again, we're doing a reading club through, like, the essential and best of, of the Marvel Universe, and we go year by year, um, so you'll get a great feel for everything. You know, if you're like, hey, I want to read Age of Apocalypse and Onslaught and all this fun stuff, that's where we are right now. We're in the mid-90s, we started in 1961, and we have covered some ground. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was This was super fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And honestly, Dave has been has created a monolith to himself when it comes to the comic book database, you know, reading lists. If you if you Google insert comic reading list or reading order, Comic Book Herald is going to be the first thing to pop up, rightfully so. And uh, the podcast that you have constructed alongside your two co-hosts, who are amazing, uh, has been one of genuinely my favorite uh, reading experiences you get to as a comic book reader you don't often get to go back and just go sequentially through the history of stuff we're doing it right now in our uh in our book club on fridays we're going through all of ultimate spider-man nice. and so listener if you enjoy our book clubs and i know some of you do some of you really enjoy those book clubs uh my marvelous year is incredible and you definitely owe it to yourself to uh, to subscribe to them and download them and all that stuff. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again. You are welcome back anytime. And I would love to uh, get into more. But this is it for the uh, for the month of X May. And I could not think of a more fitting uh, way to finish this off. Talking about one of the best X Men comics of all time with one of my favorite podcasters. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Take care. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop and comicsology or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explain Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, it was really tough. We had a ton of good books, but ultimately I decided on Nightwing number 92, written by Tom Taylor with art by Bruno Redondo. I love this book. It is so 
freaking good. Um, there's been a lot of discourse over the past week about Tom Taylor, specifically his Nightwing book. And you know what? People are wrong. That's just what it is. It's a great book. It's a great book for Dick Grayson. It's a great book for the Greater Bat family. And if you want to argue that it's a bad book and Tom Taylor doesn't know how to write, you can go argue with a wall. Sorry, it's just how it is. Nightwing number 92 was a wonderful and sentimental issue, and I am so excited to see where this book goes next. But that is last week's books. This week, I've got five books for you to check out this week, so let's go ahead and dive into them. First off, Legion of X number one, a brand new number one from Cy Spurrier and uh, art by Jan Bazaldwa. Uh, this is continuing on from the what was it called the uh the nightcrawler book why am i blanking on this um someone's shouting at me right now i can already tell um it was oh that's gonna bother me that's gonna bother me i'm gonna vamp as i'm looking this up but it was a it was a fun book i remember it introduced legion uh nightcrawler was fighting onslaught what was the book called? Way of X. Way of X. That's what it was. Way of X. Uh, this is basically the sequel series to that now in the Destiny of X era. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Peace, love, and justice to Krakoa. Krakoa has its laws, but does it have justice? To remain a mutant sanctuary, Krakoa must safeguard itself against those who would damage its peace or traumatize its people. The lost must be found, and the wicked must face redemption or retribution. It's up to the ever-soulful swashbuckler Nightcrawler to keep the spark alive and Legion to host his unique team in the psychedelic mind space called The Altar. With Pixie on point, Juggernaut as a one-man riot squad, and a host of ex-favorites on the beat, the Legion of X will do anything to protect mutants' rights to pursue happiness and hope. Kicking off with a hunt for a missing Iraqi god and a skinjacker possessing innocent mutants, read this issue and come meet weaponless Zen, or a Serata, and a villain worth praying for the destiny of x bears its heart and soul right here that is an awesome uh synopsis i just i have to mention it just it feels like this is like the i don't know the commercial you'd get for a book like this it, it sounds really cool so i'm interested in this way of x was a very very good book and i'm hoping that they're able to expand upon the ideas that were there and i mean it's got a great little group as well. Legion, Juggernaut, Pixie, Nightcrawler. It's going to be a good time. Next up on the DC side of things, we have Detective Comics number 1060. This is written by Mariko Tamaki and Sina Grace with art by David LaFam and Nadia Shimas, as well as Danny Mickey and Ivan Race. Uh, this is this has a lot of... Uh, of what is the word this has a lot to live up to because the shadows of the bat arkham tower arc was so good and the first issue of this didn't really grab me but the backup really did i love me some gotham girl and i'm willing to give this next arc a shot just because mariko tamaki is so good at what she does so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here Batman has deployed one of his most powerful weapons in the hunt for the mysterious bomber plaguing Gotham City. But it's not the Batmobile, the Batwing, or even the Batarangs. It's Bruce Wayne. 
As Bruce investigates the courtroom bombing that nearly left Deb Donovan's daughter a splatter on the wall, could there be love in the air? Interesting. They definitely set her up, Deb Donovan's daughter, to be like the new love interest for this. So... I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's all kinds of complicated stuff going on with Tali and Catwoman, so who knows? Next up, hopping back to Marvel, we have The Amazing Spider-Man number two. This is written by Zeb Wells with art by John Romita Jr. And you know what? I am really... I don't know about this book, y'all. I'm. I, I want this to be good, and I'm willing to give this a chance, especially because... If you have been following along with the X May shenanigans, I just read through Hellions that Zeb Wells had the most hand in alongside his artist team. Um, so I have faith in him as a writer, but I just, they one more date it again. There's all, Mary Jane's got kids with somebody else. They're not together. Peter did something. There was a time jump. I don't know what's happening, but I am willing to give this first arc a shot because i want this to be good i really want this to be good so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here the best couple in comics is done you aren't going to believe what is happening in this volume of amazing spider-man short sweet to the point you know what can't fault him for that We'll just have to see how this issue goes. Next up, we have Batman Beyond the White Knight number three, written and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy with help by Dave Stewart. A wonderful book so far. The first two issues have been very interesting. I was curious what the Batman Beyond story would look like in the White Knight world, and it hasn't disappointed so far. Really interested in this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Book three. The future of Gotham is coming to destroy its past. Batman, murderer? After discovering Bruce Wayne facilitated the murder of his father, Terry goes on the hunt, ready to unleash as Batman Beyond. The clock is ticking for Bruce in more ways than one after Harley Quinn's daughter goes missing. And if she takes after her father, the fate of the city is in her hands. Can the former Batman find and stop her before the police do? Yeah, lots of plates spinning on this book, which I do like, and that's what I think. That's when I think uh, the Beyond the White or just Batman White Knight stuff is at its strongest, when it's got several different plot lines going, and this one has more than several. So I love the world for this. I really like the almost role reversal where Bruce kind of has to get used to this new Gotham. Terry is being used and manipulated by Derek Powers. It's a really cool take on the Batman Beyond formula that I'm really into, so looking forward to this. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Devil's Reign Omega number 1. This is written by Chip Zdarsky, Jim Zub, and Daniel Barnes, with art by Rafael De La Torre, Luciano Vecchio, and Guillermo Sana. And this is the basically the epilogue issue, more or less, of uh, Devil's Reign, the big Chip Zdarsky, Marco Cicchetto, uh end of their part one of their Daredevil story. I don't know. We do know Daredevil is coming back, and this is more or less kind of the stopgap between the first 
Daredevil series and the second Daredevil series. We're going to find out what is the deal with the Daredevils. We're going to find out what's the deal with Matt Murdock being quote-unquote dead. And we're going to see where Matt and Elektra go from here. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Fallen Rise slash Mayor for Hire slash Cleaning House. In the wake of one of the most visceral Marvel stories ever, New York City stands remade and reforged, if not in Wilson Fisk's image, then at the very least in his spirit. After a battle that nearly tore the city and its citizens apart, New York's superheroes have no choice but to try to adapt to the new and dangerous paradigm they find themselves operating under, with 8 million people turned against them. The shocking outcome to Marvel's NYC mayoral race, the fate of Elektra as the woman without fear, and more exciting developments will emerge from the ashes of Kingpin's takeover. So a couple things with that. We do know that Elektra is still Daredevil in the Savage Avengers book that, um, who knows, is what's going on with that. Um, so I'm interested to see how that how that squares here. And let, I, I just, for one second, the whole mayoral race, I was really looking forward to the Luke Cage City on Fire tie-ins to devil's reign and they just never came out um they were announced they were i'm assuming quietly canceled or what but i was waiting for them the entire way through this event and they just never showed up so i am hoping that we get some kind of either resolution or start for a new story for luke cage because i was really excited i was really excited that luke cage is getting a book he hasn't had a book in forever so hopefully this leads to something for Luke and Jessica. Um, we'll just have to see. But we do know, if spoilers for Devil's Reign, I guess, that Kingpin is officially off the board. So how that is going to affect the city of New York going forward, especially with the anti-superhuman stance that he had, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do here. And this is, of course, going to be the prologue into part two of the Zdarsky Daredevil epic. So we'll see. I'm very excited about this. I'm really excited about all these books. So let's recap real quick. We have Legion of X number one, Detective Comics number 1060, The Amazing Spider-Man number two, and Batman Beyond the White Knight number three, and Devil's Reign Omega number one. A little bit of a lighter week this week, and I kind of like that. My wallet thanks the comic gods but there's some really good stuff on both the marvel and dc end of things so if you are itching for some good comics i think this week is gonna satisfy and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really does help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, really raises our stock up and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you want to drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally whatever you want, and I will be forced to read it. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky is the limit. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider, 
Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. Want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geek Explain mailbag, if you have a question for me, you want to give a message to the podcast, you want to request an episode, or maybe you want some recommendations on something we haven't covered on the podcast yet, you can send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here on the podcast. I read everything you send me, and I'm so, so thankful for every email that I get. I love that you guys are loving the show, and I love that you guys are loving X-May. It's, it's, it means a lot to me. So, again geeksplained at gmail.com put mailbag in the subject header and i will read it here if you want to follow me follow the podcast keep up to date uh participate in polls that decide future episodes or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news there's been plenty to go off of uh you can follow us on the social medias at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod we just crossed 300 followers on twitter which is bananas thank you so much to everyone who's already followed if you haven't yet give us a follow we talk about stuff i talk about stuff that's on the podcast i talk about stuff that's not on the podcast i participate in some kind of discourse every here and there i had to talk about the tom taylor thing it's just it bugs me to no end but again at geek explained pod if you want to follow me and finally, for the end of the plugs, every single Friday, including this Friday, we do the Geek Explained Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are going through every single issue of every single volume of Ultimate Spider-Man. This Friday, we're going to be tackling Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 21, and we're talking Return of the Symbiotes. Venom's back, and oh boy, is he not happy. So tune into that every single Friday. It's Spidey Fridays. Be there or be square, not a circle. But that is going to do it for this week's episode, and that is going to do it for X May. I want to say a huge thank you to all of our guests, Brad and Lisa from the comics, Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast, Dallas Lexi and Anne from the Comics Collective podcast, the incomparable Patrick Willems, and of course, Dave Busing of Comic Book Herald and My Marvelous Year. This was such a dream to be able to have these amazing conversations with these excellent guests. It was exactly what I wanted our second XMA to be, and I cannot thank you all enough for your kind words and your support. Coming back after the break was kind of daunting and I was a little afraid that I wouldn't feel the same and that you know you take a month off from something and you come back and I was worried you know I was worried I was rusty I was worried I was you know not gonna have the mojo I guess um but I had some amazing conversations and this month has been just such a joy and a real blessing. So again, thank you to all the guests. Check them out every everywhere you can find them. If you haven't yet, if this is your first taste of X-May, go back into the archives. Go through X-May this year. Go all the way back to X-May last year, the first time around we did this. Each episode is fun. Each episode is a great conversation and I have a ton of fun with every guest that comes on on the show and it won't be the end this is an annual thing so next may you can look forward to x may 2023 and 
I'm just really excited about the future. I'm really excited about the podcast, really excited about the guests that I've had, the guests that I've yet to have, and I'm just feeling really good. I came back energized, I came back ready to go, and I am super excited for the podcast for the foreseeable future. But that brings us to June. June is next week. It's already June. Can you imagine that? Man. But for the month of June, kicking off that month, we're going to be doing an annual tradition as I go through my top five comics that you should be reading for 2022. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time. <laughs>